Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. That was a worshipful time as we looked into that beautiful song and God has given to us through Becky Prado. We appreciate her using her musical skills on every level imaginable, really, in our church over the last 27 years. And Becky and Javier have served the Lord so faithfully here and they will be leaving their post here. They'll still be in the church and active in the church, but they're looking forward to having a time of retirement. And it's not the normal kind of retirement because they're going to stay working. So we're looking forward to having them around and the creativity that will continue to flow from Becky as she serves the Lord. Let's pray now. Father, we do think about all the people who lost so much in the 9-11 event. They lost life, many, we know that, and the loved ones they left behind are still aching over that. And we as Americans had a wake-up call. We just pray in Jesus' name that we would remember what you say, the promises you give us in the book of Second Chronicles that if we, your children, will humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, then you will hear from heaven and heal our land. Father, in the intervening 21 years, we don't have to tell you, we just need to be reminded of how much decline has occurred in this country. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, if you would equip us as your church to be a holy people set aside for your use and for your glory. Help us not to be ashamed of you and your word in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus, and use us to push forward for the glory of God in you, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, and also for the moving us further closer toward your soon return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you kept your place in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We will be looking at that in some detail. In the last several weeks, we have been looking at what Jesus has to say, particularly in the 14th chapter of John, as it relates to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. At least my prayer has been that we who had a good understanding of Holy Spirit in our minds, but more importantly in our hearts, that this has been a refresher for us. It's been a new challenge, a challenge to fan in the flame the gift of God that is in us through the laying on of the hands of the Spirit in our hearts. At, at least that much, but at best, for some in this room, there has been a shift from viewing Holy Spirit and His work as something remote and vague 
to become something that is near, dear, and a part of your understanding and life as you continue to want to know more about Him and be one who is filled with Holy Spirit. We have learned from Jesus in John 14 where He says that He will ask the Father and the Father will give us another helper just like Jesus. That is the Spirit of truth. And He will be in us how long? Forever. Once Holy Spirit comes to indwell someone, He never vacates the premises. Now, He is made uncomfortable by our reluctance to walk with Him, but He never surrenders your life once He has become in possession of it. And the good news is, He works in our lives, doesn't He? He works in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ and to be men and women who can glorify God as we serve Him. And the Holy Spirit uses us for that. We've also learned that not only does He indwell us, but Jesus tells us that He instructs us. The Holy Spirit is the helper whom God sends in answer to the prayer of Jesus to teach us. We have the best teacher imaginable. And there's not a moment in your life, if you know Jesus Christ, there will never be an instant when if you come properly before the Lord and you really want to hear from the Lord and you want to learn from the Lord, He will teach you. And what I have discovered over the 50 years that I have understood who Holy Spirit is, is that He never ends up teaching me and reminding me, but I learn new things regularly. Every time I open the Bible, if I come with a heart to hear, He teaches me. I cannot help but think about what David says in the 143rd Psalm. He says to the God, Teach me, O Lord, that I may walk in Your truth. Please, Lord, let Your Spirit lead me on level ground. I hope you know that the Holy Spirit didn't just come into being in the New Testament at Pentecost. Holy Spirit is eternal because He's God. And Holy Spirit was one whom David came to to be taught. What was true for David is true for you. Do you know that if you know Christ? And you might say, as I'm sharing these thoughts, that the Bible is really sort of a book that is a closed book to me. Well, it could be because you have yet to come to know God through Jesus Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. And in my prayer for you, if you find yourself in that situation here today, that this would be a day of new beginning. It would be a day of new life for you. Life everlasting. And the Holy Spirit will come and take residence in your life and He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Holy Spirit does indwell us if we know Christ. Holy Spirit does instruct us, but He also incites us to holiness. You're saying, okay, Mike, so far so good, but this holiness deal is something that I'm not real high on or I don't understand it. Well, 
your understanding of it is the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Do you know how often the Bible tells you and me as followers of Jesus to be holy as God is holy? That's rather daunting, isn't it? It shows up in the writings of Moses, but it shows up in the writings of apostles like Peter also as he quotes Moses in his first epistle in this regard. The Holy Spirit wants us to be holy. In the book of Philippians, yesterday I was talking to our deacons about this passage as we had our regular meeting. And there are two verses that I know pertain to this matter of Holy Spirit seeing that we are more and more as followers of Christ being conformed to the image of Christ and what God would have for us. Paul writes to the Philippians. He says that I'm expecting you to make every effort in your life to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To the casual observer or someone who just sorts of, sort of hunts and pecks when that person reads the Bible, that sounds like I'm responsible for my salvation. Does it sound like that to you? Part of the problem with that thinking is that we have a limited view because of a failure to read the Scripture in its totality as it regards to the whole matter of salvation. When you think of salvation, and I'm in this camp too, I must say, when I think of salvation, I think about that moment in my personal history when I realized that I was a lost sheep. I did not know God. I was a sinner estranged from God by my sin. I did not understand what Christ had done for me. As Christ is described this way, He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how God who knew no sin, God made Him who knew no sin, namely Jesus, to become sin on my behalf in order that I might become right with God. And then all of a sudden the light came on and I sensed the Spirit of God speaking to me. I didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit, but in retrospect, that's what happened. And I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Blessed surrender. What a surrender. It's the one white flag every one of us needs to wave, and it's the one which surprisingly issues in a whole world that is what God wants for all of us. It's the best God can have for anyone. We call that, it's not what we say it is, it's what the Bible says, justification. Regeneration, being born again, but then being justified. That term means that I became a person whom God declared innocent of all the sin. It's not as though he was ignorant of anything because he's all-knowing, isn't he? But he wiped the slate clean as far as responsibility for me to pay for my sin. I could never have done it. If I had a thousand lives, I could never have done it because we in our fallen sinful nature have no capacity to make ourselves right with God. 
He is the one who takes the initiative. And He gives us new life. We are born of the Spirit, is what the Scripture says. And consequently, we come to be made right with God. That's salvation. That's what we typically limit our thinking to. But Holy Spirit gives us insight through the Scriptures. And remember that the Holy Spirit not only instruct us, instructs us through the Scripture, but He is the ultimate author. He is the Spirit of truth. And consequently, when we come to Him in the Word, we hear what He has to say. For instance, the Scripture says this about Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter and in 2 Thessalonians, do your own research on those, but this is what He says. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Wow. What does that word sanctify mean? It's another part of your salvation. There was a point in time when I was justified. I was declared righteous so that now there is no condemnation in me, not because of anything which I have done, but because of Christ doing what He only could do. And that's to pay the penalty for my sin. But also, this word sanctification is closely related to the word which is translated holy, where the Scripture says, be holy. The word holy, I hope you know, means to be set apart for God's use. That's really the idea. And the noun form of that verb, be holy, hagiadzo, is, that, is the word for sanctification. It's translated over and over again in the Bible, in the New Testament at least. And to be sanctified is to be set apart for God's use and God's glory. Jesus in the high priestly prayer that we'll get to one of these days in the 17th chapter of John, He's praying to the Father and He says, among other things, petitioning for us actually, Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth. Your Word is truth. What means does God use to make us holy? Well, the Holy Spirit makes us holy by the Word, doesn't He? So going back to Philippians 2, 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We should read the next verse. Every text has a context, doesn't it? And we need to follow the full flow of thought of Holy Spirit what we're to do is to remember that it is God who is at work in you according to His plan for you. God is at work in us by the Spirit of God to teach us, to empower us, to incite us to be like Christ. Any nudge, and sometimes it's more than a nudge, it's almost like a sledgehammer when you read the Word. And that makes sense because in Jeremiah 23, 29, this is what the Word of God says to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah conveys it to those wayward Judeans. He says, your word is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks. Sometimes we're so hard-headed and hard-hearted, even after we come to Christ, we get on our own deal and we say, okay, I'm saved, I'm good. And we forget that we have a lot of sanctifying work that needs to be done in our lives by the Spirit 
as we work out our own salvation, as we read the Word of God, and He empowers us to be who He wants us to be. He incites us to holiness. I hope that encourages you. And you might as well give up the fight if you're fighting against Him. You will never win. He has never lost a battle. Paul writes in Galatians 5.17 that there's this internal war that is being waged right now between every believer and unbeliever. It's a war between Holy Spirit and what the Bible calls our flesh. Now, I think everyone could answer this question. Who's going to win that war? But we are so stubborn, aren't we? We are so procrastinating that we say, well, I'll, I'll get right with you, Lord. I'll get right with you, Lord. The time's not right, Lord. I promise you tomorrow. Do you know the only time on the devil's clock is manana? The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, today is the day of your salvation. And that certainly would apply to people who don't know Christ. Once more, I'll just be redundant, but I don't apologize for it. If you have yet to open your heart to Jesus, there's no better day than today. And you look back on this day, not just for the rest of your personal history and time, but in turning say, oh, glorious day when the Lord came and saved me. We need to remember that those words in 2 Corinthians were not written to people who didn't know Christ. They already knew the Lord. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That was written to people that Paul had said in the first chapter of Philippians where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now listen, being confident that the work that God began in you, He will carry it on to complete completion in Christ Jesus. Is this gospel message something amazing or what? What God is doing in our lives to change us, to make us holy, to sanctify us. We're going to look now at the book of Ephesians at yet another work of Holy Spirit. This is one that perhaps is more mysterious than the other three to us. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him, that would be in Jesus Christ, you also, this would be all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, excuse me, at Ephesus, all the saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. And remember a saint? It's not what we have as an image that comes to mind when we think of what a saint is. A saint is not someone who's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Nor is a saint someone who's been memorialized in some stained glass window in a beautiful church building. A saint is someone who has been called out of darkness the darkness of sin, into God's marvelous light in order that that person can let his or her light shine in such a way that people will see his or her God, good works and glorify his or her God. 
by doing so. So, in this passage, in him also, in Ephesians 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That's a mouthful, really. There's one sentence that flows from verse 3 all the way down to here. Or 11, verse 11 at least. All the way. It's amazing. But what I want you to pay attention to is this statement that the Holy Spirit sealed us in Christ and He is the Spirit of truth. Let's pause just a moment. Some of you may know this. I hope you do. Most of you might. But the idea of sealing in the time of Paul, in the time of Jesus, when a person of authority, a political leader, a monarch, a ruler, wanted to send a message to someone and wanted to be sure that the one who received the message would know that the message was two things. It was authoritative because it had the steel, seal rather, the stamp of that dignitary, that person of power and responsibility, and that would in itself authorize it, but also it authenticated the document. Do you know the Bible tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians that when Paul thought of the Corinthian church, that he said, we're not writing letters of recommendation as would be normal with a pen and papyrus, but what we are doing, we have letters of Christ in you. You are our letters of recommendation. Do you know the recommendation that God has for the world as it relates to his being seen as a bona fide king of kings and lord of lords. It's us. He sanctifies us. He makes us what he only can make us. Holy Spirit is described this way by Jesus in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be what? My witnesses all over the world. You will be my witnesses. So when we understand this matter of sealing and the Lord says we are sealed, that means the same thing for us as a person who took a message and became as it were as if that person was the sender in person himself as that was delivered. We are authorized, therefore we have authority, and we also are authentic. We're not foisting some sort of fake information under the name of someone who is powerful. We do have a powerful one who sends us, do we not? We have Holy Spirit. In the book of Matthew chapter 10, we won't look at that, but you might want to jot it down. Jesus says, 
when you are brought before courts and kings and governors, don't worry one whit about what you were to say or how you will say it when you find yourself in such a position. Why? Because the Spirit of the Father will give you the words to say in that moment. Those people would have been schooled by the Holy Spirit leading up to those events. So we need not be nervous when we are on a mission and we're to be witnesses. Remember, that's what it says. It doesn't say do witnessing. What does it say? Be a witness. Being is more important than doing. A lot of people try to witness and there's an inconsistency in their relationship to God. But what God says is, I want you to walk in the Spirit. I want you to trust in the Holy Spirit. I want you to submit yourself without reservation to the Holy Spirit. He will fill you. And not only will He fill you in the sense of controlling your actions, but He will give you the mind of Christ. Does that ever sort of boggle your mind when you think what the Bible says about you if you know Jesus in the book of 1 Corinthians 2, what does it say? Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Spirit of God thinks identically to Jesus. And so whatever Jesus would do in any given situation, whatever Jesus would say in any given situation, what do we have at our disposal to understand? He will teach us what to say. He will give us what to say in those moments when we are called upon to bear witness to Him. So, we're authorized. Paul says this in the book of 2 Corinthians to further emphasize our role as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ. Have you ever stopped to think what an ambassador's role is? What would you think that the Lord would want you to be and do if you were tomorrow given the assignment to be an ambassador to you pick the country? First of all, you would have to be aware of the customs of the country. If at all possible, you would have a level of fluency of speech and you would be a person who cared about the future of that country. You would be one who would be sent out by the President of the United States as if he were there in person. Correct? Correct. And this is exactly who we are. There's another very important portion, and maybe more important than the, what I've said so far. far. Uh, an excellent ambassador has the best interest of the one who sends him or her. And so we have the best interest not only for the people that we are ambassadors in Christ to, but also for our Lord whom we represent. Wonderful to think about, isn't it? We are authorized and we are made authentic. Let's look again at this passage 
a little bit. In Him you also, after listening in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him, that's in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let's pause here just a moment. The Holy Spirit of promise. Holy Spirit was promised before He came to indwell in the church. Christ promises it in the book of John. It's promised before that in history. And Holy Spirit is the promise of God. I could not help as I was thinking about this message to remember 1 Kings 8.56. The second half of it says this. It says that not one word of His promise failed that was given by Moses through the Spirit for Israel. Not one word. God is not a man that He should lie, the Bible says, or a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Has He promised and will He not fulfill it? Do you know the Holy Spirit is the promise to you and me? If we have trusted Christ and if we have he has come to indwell us. And He instructs us. He incites us to become more and more like Himself by the work of the Spirit of God in us. If that is the case, then we have been sealed by Him as well. And we have the promise, verse 14 says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. If you want to know what your inheritance is in Christ, read carefully with pencil or pen in hand, and jot down everything that God says through Paul in verses 3 up until this point about who you are in Christ. It is awesome. It will encourage you and do that. But what the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit Himself is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The word translated pledge is a word borrowed, of course, from everyday life among the Greco-Roman world inhabitants. And this word was a word which had to do with the rough equivalent of earnest money. Perhaps when you bought your house or houses, I've gone into debt three times to buy a house I'm glad to say I'm out of debt and don't have any idea of going there again. It's a good thing to be out, isn't it? But in every instance, the seller wanted some earnest money. And I gave it. Why? I wanted the house, right? But what did the earnest money prove to the one from whom I was purchasing the house? It proved that I was serious it was a promise. On one occasion, my wife and I decided we weren't going through with the buying of the house, and I lost some money. And I was more careful the next time I gave some money for earnest money. But the good news is the Lord promises us eternal life. We have the promise of eternal life. He ensures us, Holy Spirit ensures you and me 
that we are on our way to heaven. And Jesus himself says this. He says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but has eternal life. It's a present possession. We have Holy Spirit given eternal life, but it's the promise. When we have moments in our relationship with the Lord that are glorious moments, those are foreshadowings of what is to come. And just a little slice of what it's going to be like to be in an uninterrupted, unhindered relationship to God when we are taken into heaven and receive a new body at the resurrection. Phenomenal, isn't it? He authorizes us, doesn't He? But what else does He do? He authenticates us. And I'm going to ask you to turn now back for the remaining of our time to Galatians. Chapter 5. Get your place there. And then turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Go back to Ephesians. And let's look at verses 18 through 20 of Ephesians before we finish in Galatians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. The grammar would be better translated this way. Stop getting drunk on wine. Believers in Ephesus in the church were getting drunk on wine. That is a sin to get drunk on any kind of liquor. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. To be filled, we've seen on more than one occasion, is to be controlled by. When you look at the usage of the word filled in the New Testament, you cannot help but conclude that that's the primary meaning, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Y'all keep on being filled with the Spirit is actually what is said here in our vernacular. And what that means is it's something that's not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is the normal Christian life. And then there are four marks that is, are characteristic of a true Spirit-filled person and a truly Spirit-filled church. So listen carefully. What is the first authentication? speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's stop here just a moment. Speaking to one another. We talked about this last week. If you avoid people in the church because you've got a bone to pick with them or you don't like them, then you aren't filled with the Spirit in that moment. Repent of that sin and speak to people and care about people and you incite them when you sing. Some of us can't sing worth a hoot, but those of us who are filled with the Spirit, we're not to worry about our audience with a little a. Who is our audience? It's the Lord. It's the Lord that we're singing to when we sing. But we speak 
as individuals and as a body. He goes on to say, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's a relief, isn't it, for those of us who aren't accomplished singers? Where does it come from? It comes from our heart, and we sing to our Lord. That is true of a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled person, as we've said. The whole is the sum of the parts. Verse 20 says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What's number three? Having a grateful heart with no caveat, with no release to say, okay, Lord, but. There's no buts in that. Everything. He uses three ways to describe this. He uses a present tense verbal. It's a participle, speaking to one another, always speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always, proverb here, adverb rather, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last one is be subject, and here again, keep on being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so what we need to do is be men and women who are willing to submit to each other. That's a Holy Spirit-filled person. And notice all of these characteristics from God's Word have to do with relationships. And as we go now to Galatians 5 for authentication, He authenticates us. He makes those whom we interact with especially when we go and minister to people outside the framework of the church, the gospel, He makes us an aroma of Christ Himself as Paul describes Himself and His traveling companions in the book of 2 Corinthians. So let's go to verses 22 and 23 in the book of Galatians chapter 5. 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice that the Scripture does not say the fruits of the Spirit. I have before said the fruits of the Spirit, and I've been corrected by the Holy Spirit in the Word. It's fruit. It's a cluster of things. The gifts of the Spirit are distributed by Holy Spirit for purposes of ministry to the body and glorying in the Lord, bringing glory to the Lord. In the teaching of the gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and following, and in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, what we know is there are different gifts. And we also know there is strong suggestion that a person at, will have more than one gift. We know the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Holy Spirit Himself gives gifts to a gift, at least to every believer. doesn't matter who you are. He gives the gift and for the purpose of building up the body, encouraging the believers, and also that contributes to the growth of the church numerically and internally in terms of spiritual growth. 
but also this word carries with it the idea not only of building up the body, but also of really glorifying the Lord as, as we serve the church of Jesus Christ. So fruit is singular, which means all of these nine descriptions are things that are to be true and will be true to one degree or another in all people who know Jesus as Lord and are filled with the Holy Spirit. So run this list on yourself right now, would you? I, I do it. I have to do it before I get up and preach. Uh, and uh, I, I'm kind of glad I don't teach on this every week. It's kind of too convicting. Now let me go ahead and use this. Uh, one of my great influences in my life, a man named John Stott. I never had the opportunity to sit and meet John Stott in person, but I've read his works rather thoroughly, and I've been influenced, thank God, by the Spirit of God through him. This is what he would do every morning in his time alone with the Lord. When he got alone with the Lord, to have what we commonly call a quiet time, he would go down the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And then he would evaluate his life based on the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, comparing to the day before. As he entered into the presence of the Lord, he wanted to be holy. He wanted to be set apart so he could have that kind of relationship with the Lord. And the first is love. And we know what that word love means. It's the sacrifice of oneself in the service of undeserving others. That's the way it relates to Jesus. He says, Father, I pray that my disciples will lay down their lives like I did, showing their love. This is a big one. In fact, it is possible, if not probable, that this would be like the umbrella word under which the other attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are to find themselves. Love. Do you love that way unconditionally? And sometimes that means doing hard things with people it's not to be the norm by any means. But what we do know, what Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And sometimes in our homes, uh, not sometimes, I don't know a home that hasn't had to, this, to discipline children. If they have children, they need to be disciplined, don't they? But we do it in love if we do it properly correct. So we knew... No, rather, that this kind of love is that self-giving love. Joy, and it's been described as joy, is love's cheerfulness. Isn't it wild to think that God would tell me to rejoice in the Lord always? And for emphasis, He goes on to say, again, I'll say rejoice. He says to me that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Thank God for that. Some of you have been in situations, maybe you are today, even as a believer, where things are rather gloomy and you enter here with a heavy heart. The good news is the Lord will give you His joy. It's from the Holy Spirit of God. And He will enable you to rise up if you begin to rejoice in all things. Why can we do that? Because He is sovereign, 
And what I have known in my personal life to a lesser degree than most people perhaps, but still I have known it, is that when I begin to rejoice in the Lord, especially when things are going poorly, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. I kind of, you know, pout and don't want to do it. But then finally I say, okay, Lord, you win. I begin to rejoice and I'm saying, Lord, I win too because I'm entering into your presence with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. A woman or a man who understands what it means to be filled with the Spirit will be a person who experiences the cheerfulness of love. Peace. Peace. Jesus, we've seen recently in John 14, 27, says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. He couldn't even bring himself to describe whatever the world tries to pass off to us as peace. He couldn't even use the word because he knew it was a false kind of peace. But he says, my peace I give to you. And this is love's confidence. One of the things we know about the first generation of believers is that even though many of them were commoners, in fact, when Peter and John were brought before the tribune, the tribunal of the leaders of Israel, the response that they had when they dismissed the men so they could talk over what kind of penalty they would meet out for them. They said, these are ordinary, uneducated men. Thank God that He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. This doesn't mean that we have to work at being ignorant. Not at all. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. Isn't that what the Bible says? But I left something out. We're to love the Lord our God with all our mind. We apply the best intellect we have to matters pertaining to the, pertaining to the Scripture, knowing that apart from the Holy Spirit's instruction, we'll never understand. But we need to be people who are in touch with the things that God has done in the creation. And we need to be men and women who are people who have the confidence of Christ. Peace is love's confidence. And then the next word is the word patience. The word in the King James is translated long-suffering, and it means exactly that. Someone who has been offended, and has the right to retaliate, and not only the right to retaliate, but the power to retaliate for that harm done, restrains himself or herself as that person remembers to bring herself or himself under the authority of the Holy Spirit's control. So, long-suffering or patience is love's composure. And then, what's the next word? Kindness, it speaks for itself. It's love's considerateness. Don't you like to be in the presence of someone who is considerate of you? Does it ever make you scratch your head and say, that guy's got to be a fake? There's no way. I need to go home and see how he treats his wife. And that would be a good barometer, by the way. 
if you're married and a male, works both ways too for women. Goodness, this is love's character. And faithfulness is love's consistency, constancy. Solomon, in writing one of his Proverbs, says this, a faithful man who can find. In his day, faithful people were in short supply. And they are always, it seems, in short supply. But a, one who is filled with the Spirit has that kind of consistency. And then gentleness. Some of the translations translated meekness. The King James does that. And the word was used outside the New Testament to describe a wild stallion who had been broken and therefore could be controlled by a bit and a rein. A tremendously strong animal would respond. Why? Its will had been broken. Not its spirit, but its will had been broken. And this is true of Jesus Himself. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. The word gentle there is the word that's akin to this word. Same word, family. Self-control. Man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This is an impressive list, isn't it? Impressive. And you say, this is a tall order. It is. It's an impossible thing to do on your own, in your own strength. That's why we are called upon to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God. God ensures our eternal life. Jesus does. Holy Spirit does as our seal to authenticate us. And this is what the Bible says in closing about eternal life. This is eternal life that you may know God. And the Bible also says, this is eternal life. This is how you know. In this you have eternal life. That you have the Son living in you. And as a result of the Son's presence in your life, He is the life. And Paul, John rather, goes on to write this in John chapter 5. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? You can. It's simply by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, giving your life to Him without reservation. Would you pray? Lord, we thank You for the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the Bible about Himself. Thank You, Lord, that You let us know who He is and what that means to us. Oh God, we pray that we would be eager to draw close to You through the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask You to control our lives. And Jesus, we say, be our Lord. We yield our lives to You, Lord. Help us to be done with running our own lives and continuing to mess them up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.